Welcome to the Inez Franklin Teaching and Sermons Podcast. Inez is a teaching pastor, public speaker, and founder at trochia.org. Learn more about Inez at www.inezfranklin.com. We hope this teaching brings you guidance, connection, or tools as we seek God together today. Enjoy the teaching. Students, thank you for joining us at the chapel and the chapel community. Surprise! (laughs) You did not know this was coming. Uh, We want to have uh, the combined service because we believe together we could do something pretty remarkable. We're going to talk about that this week. So I'm so glad that you're all here. And I understand that the junior high students have been studying uh, a certain book in the Bible. It's different than ours. What are you guys studying? Jonah. And we have been studying Nehemiah. So for the benefit of the students, we're going to do a quick run through of what we at the chapel have been learning about Nehemiah. Are you ready? Okay. So the Israelites uh, were sent, were taken captive by mean uh, Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon. He took the people of Israel, destroyed their city, brought them to Babylon and made them prisoners. Uh, over many times and many years, Nebuchadnezzar died, and the next king, Cyrus, came and let the people free. God gave him the thoughts to do so, and he sends them back to Jerusalem. A group of them go back, and the first thing they do, because they're so excited that they're now free, is they worship God, thanking him for setting them free. They build the altar, they start building the foundation of the temple, because it was destroyed, and they start to build the temple. But see, the problem was that people that were living in that area who stayed behind did not want the Israelites to rebuild. So they start harassing them and bothering and trying to stop the work. And so it takes them 16 years to build the temple. And do you know why they did not want the Israelites to rebuild? It was because the Israelites were a great great nation. God favored them, and all the nations knew that, and they feared them, and so they didn't want them to be strong again. So then we see that the temple is built, but now we have to build the city walls. All around the city, there were walls that were destroyed by the Babylonians, but the people could not build them. Now, how many of you lock your doors when you go to bed at night before you go to sleep? Okay, most of you, okay, some of you don't. I'm coming over tomorrow. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, we lock our doors because we want to feel safe, right? It just makes sense. The walls around the city of Jerusalem was their safety, their locked door, per se. If they didn't have walls, people could come in and steal their food, steal their provisions, steal their homes, steal their wives. It was open for anyone to come in and harass them. So they needed the walls. Without the walls, they felt vulnerable. They were in disgrace. And no one could see the power of God working upon them while they were this vulnerable. Enter Nehemiah. We hear that Nehemiah was a Jewish guy in Cyrus's temple, Cyrus's kingdom in Babylon. You know, his job was for King Artaxerxes was the cupbearer. The cupbearer would taste the wine for the king before the king would drink it. Anybody have any idea why the king would have him do that? Yes, sir. Because it could be poison. Exactly. You're brilliant. But, you know, the reality was people wanted to kill the king. The easiest way to do that, put a little drop of something in the drink, 
Something would happen, they thought it was indigestion, nobody would know. But Nehemiah's job was to taste the wine before the king so the king would not die. Well, Nehemiah was a smart guy too. He probably has some people drinking wine before him. So he survived. And so he becomes a great friend with the king. And they have a good relationship. Now, Nehemiah's brother shows up and he tells Nehemiah, Nehemiah, the people in Jerusalem are suffering. Their walls cannot be rebuilt. We are vulnerable. We're in disgrace. And Nehemiah gets so sad. He gets sad for his people. Here he is living in a palace, having it all good. And yet his people were suffering. And he starts to pray. And he starts to fast. And he starts to mourn. He gets so sad that the king notices that something's wrong with him. and goes, Nehemiah, what's up? Why are you so sad? And Nehemiah tells them about the problems with his people. And the king allows Nehemiah to go back to Jerusalem to help them rebuild. And he gives them wood. And he gives them a letter that says he can do it. And he gives them an army to protect them because it was 900 miles back down to Jerusalem. And now we enter the story when Nehemiah makes it to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. He gets there, he checks out the problem, he gathers all the people of Israelite together, and he casts a vision for them of what we can do. And so in chapter 2 of Nehemiah, we read the vision that Nehemiah casted for the people. Look what it says. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in? Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. And they replied, read it with me, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. Nehemiah gives them a vision of what God wants to do. He wants his city to be back into splendor. God wants the city to be in splendor because it is a picture of his presence with his people. In Psalm 48, it says this, Beautiful in its loftiness, the joy of the whole earth, like the heights of Zaphon in Mount Zion, is the city of the great king. That's the vision that Nehemiah paints for his people. We will once again be a great city. We're in disgrace now, but let's build the walls again. And they say, yes, let's do this. Together, we can do great things. Now, you're caught up. We're on chapter 3 of Nehemiah, and it's one of those chapters that's very hard to read because you thought those kings were hard to pronounce. There's a bunch of people that are hard to pronounce. And what we see in Nehemiah 3 is the power of teamwork. How many of you are good at math? Well, not too many of you, huh? <laughs> okay, guys, those of you who are good at math are not going to like this equation, but it is true. Check this equation out. I know, some of you are going, that's not right, but it is. This is why. Team math, team math is different. See, when people come together to do something, they can do, the sum of what they can do is greater than the sum of what they can do as individuals. We have the ability when we gather together and we work in a team to accomplish things we could never imagine creating on our own. I'll give you a simple example. Ever seen an aircraft carrier? Check this one out. This is the USS John C. Stennis. 
named after a Mississippi senator. 1,092 feet, the most technologically advanced Nimitz-class nuclear-powered supercarrier. Now, how many people do you think it takes to build this ship? The largest in the ocean. Hundred and twenty. Very good guess. Anybody else? Anybody? Come on, guys. Let's get some numbers. Yes, sir. Over nine thousand. One more guess back here. Go ahead. Guess. Twelve thousand. I want to hear an adult. An adult. Any adult willing to guess? Come on, Carrie. What's the number? Seventy-five. All right, would you be shocked to learn that according to Northrop Grumman, it takes 150,000 people to build this ship? When you count all the parts that have to be made, valves and controls and pumps and you name it, that's how many people it takes. Now, the person making the valve and the pump could never imagine that their little part ends up becoming part of this huge thing. How many of you own an iPad? All right. How many people does it take to build an iPad? 20? Yell out some numbers, guys. Okay. Very good guess. You're wrong. It takes 325 people five days to build one laptop. One iPad. Now, you see, the point here is all the little parts that are being made by themselves don't seem like much. But when we come together, we can build great things. And so what we see is Nehemiah pulls a team together to work. Now, look, it starts like this in verse 1. I'm just only going to read a little part of Nehemiah 3. Look at what it says. Pay attention to the names. Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and rebuild the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they had dedicated, and as far as the Tower of Hananel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zakur, son of Imri, built next to them. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hasanaah, and they laid these beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. And the chapter keeps going, name after name after name, of parts that people built together, building the city walls, putting it all together. But you know where the work begins? It begins in the sheep gate. That's very important, because if you and I are going to do team math. When you add God to that mathematics, oh, you can do the impossible. You can do the impossible. And we see that they begin with the sheep gate, which has tremendous significance. It was the closest gate to the temple through which the animals that were coming in for the sacrifice would come. That gate represents salvation. Do you remember that when John the Baptist saw Jesus for the first time, he said, Behold, there is the Lamb of God who comes to save the world, right? To take away the sins of the world. And then Jesus himself said this in John chapter 10. Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. 
The thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it to the fullest. You see, that gate reminds us of one important truth. Salvation is costly. Salvation requires sacrifice. That sacrifice was done by Jesus Christ. And you know what's amazing about this gate? It's the only gate without bolts or any kind of lock. Right before the temple, that gate is an open gate to anyone who wants to enter. That's the same as Jesus. Through Jesus, access to God is available to anyone. But you have to go through that gate. And so we see the city beginning with God, dedicating that gate, and then going around the city building all the other gates, putting it all together. Now listen, if I was going to do this job, if I was going to build walls with big stone and wood and timber and make the city walls come back together, I would hire some big dudes. I'd hire the guys that have like no neck, you know, their shoulders up here. And they have muscles, and they, they're like, they have a permanent tan, you know, because they work outside all the time. And they, they have a hard hat and steel-toed boots and maybe a tattoo or two and maybe a ponytail. And they walk like this, like, yeah, I'm tough. Those are the guys I'd hire. I'd hire engineers, you know, the ones with the big calculators who would come in and go, okay, we're going to need this many pieces of timber and this many rocks, and this is how much time it takes and how many people we need. And I'd want someone really, really smart like that. But who does Nehemiah choose? Look at this list. He chooses priests. He chooses men. And it doesn't mention women, but listen, someone was doing the cooking. (laughs) Sons and daughters, craftsmen, goldsmith, perfume makers. What does a perfume maker have any knowledge of how to build a wall, right? It's like nothing. Governors, rulers, merchants, people who did not want to get their hands dirty, and servants. This is the team that Nehemiah puts together to do the work. God chooses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. See, I wonder if you feel perhaps that you can't be used by God to do something amazing. Do you feel like you're too young, like you don't know enough? Do you feel like you're too old? Been there, done that. Do you feel like you don't have the skills? Do you feel like you don't know the problem is too big? Do you feel like you have no clue how to enter into a situation? Do you feel like you've made too many mistakes and now you're disqualified? You see, God is not interested in your ability or your capability. You know what God's interested in? He wants to know if you're willing. All of these people we're willing. Are you willing to let God use you to do great things? You know, the thing I love about the Israelites is they were willing to do that. I mean, they were willing to do something that maybe they didn't feel like they were ready to do, something that they didn't feel like maybe they were equipped to do. Maybe they didn't have the experience to do it. Here's the thing that I love about God and I love about Jesus. When he finds people, a resume is not what he's looking for. He's not looking for the skills you have and how you've proven that you can do it. He's looking for a willing person. Someone who's willing to say, I can do this. Yeah, I don't know how to do it. I don't know, you know, the details to accomplish it. I don't know. I probably am going to get it wrong a little bit. And I'm going to make mistakes and I'm going to screw it up. But he's looking for a willing heart. Someone who says, I'm willing to give it a shot. I want to do it. Maybe I don't know how to do it, but I'm willing to learn. 
and I want to be part of it. When I was in school, uh, I played football. Now, a lot of you are looking at me and thinking, that's obvious that this guy played football. So obvious. And I thank you for that. I thank you for that. Uh, I played football. I was young. My parents signed me up for it. And like most kids, you know, there's a lot of, there's a number of things you'll do just because your parents sign you up for it. So they signed me up for football. I go for football and I'm not a great football player. You know, no lie there. I'm not incredible. I'm not, you know, running around the field doing incredible things. I'm usually sitting on the bench with the playbook, with a comic book in the playbook, reading Spider-Man. And that's what I'm usually doing. And this one game, one of the guys who's a linebacker got injured. So he's out there, he's being the linebacker, and that's usually the guy. We're all kids, but even kids, like there's some kids that are just kind of like, you know, meaty, you know, muscly kids. So there's one kid, he's playing linebacker, and his job is to tackle the running back or tackle whoever, just smash people. And the, 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 he got injured, and the coach came to me, and he said, hey, you know, he got injured, you're, you're going in. And I'm like, okay, cool, cool. Like, where, going in where? Where am I going? He's like, you're going into the game. I'm like, oh yeah, okay. And I got to hunt down my helmet, I don't know where it is, and I put my helmet on, and go into the game as the linebacker. So, you know, me as the linebacker. It's like the whole thing. So I'm standing there like ready and the play is going and the running back gets the ball from the other team and he's kind of running toward me. And even from a far distance, he looked gigantic and he only got bigger as he got closer and he ran right over me like I wasn't even there, just piled over me and I was laying, I felt like there was an imprint of my body in the ground, like a cartoon. And I go back on the sidelines to the guy and I see the guy that was injured, the guy I just took the spot for. And I look at him and I'm like, man, I'm so sorry. Like I totally blew it. And he hit me on the pads, and he's like, dude, don't worry about it. You did great. Thanks for stepping up. Thanks for going in. And I'm thinking, and I say, like, thank you. Like, thanks for going. Like, I didn't even do a great job. Like, they scored a touchdown. Like, I'm not even that good. He's like, no, no, dude, dude, I got injured. You were the next man up. You know, that makes sense in sports. You know, the next man up, who's going? You know, they do alternates in the Olympics. They have the second, third string waiting on the bench. When someone goes down, the next man up comes up. Now, here's the thing. That makes sense when we're talking about the world of sports, probably, but it doesn't correlate in our brains to the world of ministry and what God is doing. You know, we don't think, well, you know, no, I can be ill-equipped and I can be ill-prepared and I can still be the next man up. You know, if I passed out right now, Charlie could come up here and teach this lesson. Like, we don't think that way. We think that, you know, the people up here teaching have a certain preparedness, a certain ability that no one else has. When you're wearing a name tag, like they must have some special Jedi training that none of us can do. But here's the thing that Nehemiah knew. He just needed to find people who were willing to be the next man up for someone else. I'm not going to read the entire verses, but I'm going to put it up here. It's from Nehemiah chapter three. This is what it says. I'm not going to butcher all these names for you. Unlike Inez, I'm terrible at pronouncing these names. So I'm not going to butcher them all for you. I have the last service, so you can ask someone how bad I was there. But this is what I'm going to, I want you to focus on. As you look through this and you're seeing name after name, son of this guy, the, the word next comes up so often. The next section, next to him, the son of this guy made repairs. Next to him, the son of this other guy made more repairs. Like next to this guy, next to that guy, there's always someone down the line. It actually continues on in the next verse we see out of Nehemiah, uh, verse 20. Next to him was this guy who was the son of this other guy who zealously repaired this wall, this section from the angle entrance to the house uh, and the high priest that they're referencing that guy. There's always someone next. You know, Nehemiah knew the idea of rallying a team of people that did not have to know how to do everything. They just had a willingness to do something. Here's the thing that I find more often than not in students and in adults. Everybody wants to do something, 
Just no one knows how to do that thing that they want to do. Everyone wants to make an impact in their marketplace for Jesus, you know, through great business practices. They want to make an impact in their family as a husband, a father, you know, a sister, a brother, a mother. They want to make an impact at school. You know, they see this whole list of clubs they have at school and they say to themselves, man, wouldn't it be so cool if we had like a club that was about Jesus, like where people could come and they could feel accepted and we do this thing about Jesus. Like that sounds so great, right? But I don't know how to do that. I'm not a pastor. I'm not equipped to do these things. So I just don't do them. You know, usually the things that hold us back from doing these incredible things is we look in the mirror and we just see not what God wants us to see. We see what we see. We see mistakes we've made. We see failures we've had. Man, I I really want to make an impact, but I failed at this, this, and this, so I can't do that. We look in the mirror and we see labels that people have put on us. You know, parents, adults, you guys are in here. If you know what I'm talking about, maybe you haven't reconciled labels that people have put on you from your childhood and you still carry some of that. Like, that's a tough thing. I'm 31. I'm still dealing with labels, the things that people put on me. You know, students, like, you know what it's like. You know, they're handing out labels at school. Like, we hand out, like, welcome cards at church. Like, there's always a kid willing to label something, something that they're not. And that's a really tough world we live in. But when we look in the mirror, often we see those labels, those things looking back at us, telling us that we can't, or we shouldn't, or we're not prepared to, or it's impossible for us to, and we move away from the word of God, and we move towards something very different. You know, in Ephesians, and this is, like, one of the most killer passages ever, this guy, Paul, you guys know who Paul is? Paul is, this guy's crazy, okay? Paul was a very smart guy raised in Jewish heritage, and he wrote, you know, grew through the ranks pretty fast. Very smart guy, very charismatic, great leader, but he was leading people in a, in a pretty dark path. Um, you know, later in his life, he started, uh, you know, getting groups together and going and hunting Christians, people that were followers of Jesus. And he'd hunt them down, and they'd kill them. Very, very crazy, very, very intense. Well, one day he's walking down this road and, and Jesus appears to him. It's this big conversion moment. It changed his whole life. He went to this next town, a completely different person, and his life totally changed. Instead of hunting churches, and you know, he was planting churches. And instead of hunting the people who were going to churches, he, were in, he was inviting people into those churches. And there's this one specific church, and he planted many, many churches, all in the New Testament. You guys should read your Bible. It's super good. Maybe you have a map in the back. It'll, it's kind of like a cheat sheet, so you know, check that out. And he, he wrote a letter to this church in Ephesus. All right, the book of the Bible is called Ephesians. It was a book written to, the letter written to Ephesus. Now, I want you to remember, he wrote this book, if you don't know this, he wrote this book while he was in prison. Now, I don't know if anyone's ever written a letter in prison like I have and tried to get it out. It is tough. It is super tough. This guy, he's in Roman prison. That's not Disneyland. But he's writing this letter as an encouragement to this church in Ephesus. And this is what he says to him. This is what he says to him. It's right here on the screen. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You know, Nehemiah, there was intentionality behind what he was building. There was a purpose behind what he was doing. You know, we read Nehemiah and we see that and we're like, man, God is just so tight. You know, this, look at this leader, Nehemiah. Look at all these guys who are willing to help out. You know, we'll praise the handiwork that we see in scripture in a story like Nehemiah. But we dismiss the handiwork of God when it looks us in the mirror. You know, we are made with purpose. You know, each one of us, you know, we, if we were in this story, you know, we'd probably find all these reasons why we can't be part of building this wall. 
You know, we can't and we shouldn't and what about our past and all these mistakes and blah, 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 blah. And it keeps us from doing what God's called us to do. When, when Paul looks at these people and says, you are a masterpiece. You know, it was really tough for them to do church back then. You know, Ephesus was like this hub. It was like this big mega hub for idol worship. Like if you're into idol worship, like if you're into baseball, you go to Cooperstown, right? If you're into hockey, you go to Toronto. If you're into idol worship, you got to go to Ephesus. They're the best idols ever. And if you go to Ephesus, it's like there's idols all over the place. And, and all these different leaders of this, you know, the, this, you know, idol culture are trying to pull people toward, you know, no, don't worship. The, who's Jesus? Who's that guy? No, no, come look at my golden statue. And that's what they did. And so when Paul was writing this letter of encouragement, he knows he's trying to inspire these people to move away from what maybe is comfortable or familiar, but to look at Jesus in a completely different way because the way they look at themselves is completely backwards. See, you can't see Jesus if you're looking at yourself backwards. If you're not looking at yourself like a handiwork of Christ, if you're not looking at yourself like there is purpose to you, if you're not looking at yourself like the the things that you're doing, they were prepared in advance that God thought out you and the things that you do, and the gifts that you have, if you don't believe that, it is impossible for you to truly know the fullness of Jesus. You know, this is what it says in Corinthians. This is like one of my favorite verses. Uh, If you should read it later, I highly recommend it. It's in your notes. Maybe you want to memorize this. It's very good stuff. This is what it says. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Reconciliation. A lot of adults probably know what that means. Students, I'm not sure, but I'm going to teach you. Okay, this is reconciliation. It's putting together things that are broken. It's reconciling. It's fixing. When I was a kid, me and my buddy were playing football in the house. Okay, we were throwing the ball around and we were doing what all kids do, you know, jumping across the sofa to catch it in a very dramatic fashion while yelling out the name of your favorite team or or athlete. Okay, That's, that's what I did. I still do that in the student center all the time. But I, as a kid, I did this. So we're at my house and, you know, my mom has a very simple rule. Most of your parents have simple rules. And one of those rules when it comes to, you know, footballs or whatever in the house, it's usually there's no... Throwing balls in the house are a very simple rule. Everyone knows this rule. My mom wasn't home, though, so I thought those rules didn't apply, obviously. So me and my buddy are throwing the football around, and I'm catching it very dramatically like a superhero. And, uh, and it was all going really good until he threw the ball, and it missed. Now, this guy, this buddy of mine, if I don't look like a football player, this guy's definitely not a football player. This guy missed. All right, I'm, uh, we're at my house on a couch. I mean, I don't know how you can miss me that bad. But he throws the ball. It couldn't be further away from me. But it's very close to, maybe he was throwing it to, my mother's vase, which was given to her by her mother, my grandmother, who's no longer with us, and it hit the vase and shattered on the floor. Now, the first thing I thought was, I'm dead, okay? So I've already started thinking, how far is Mexico? How far is Canada? Where could I go? Could I start a new life? I was very young, but could I do it? But I decided instead of doing that, you know, I got a pretty high grade in art class. So I'm going to grab the crazy glue. I'm going to put this thing together. How hard could it be? So I grabbed the glue and I start putting it together and, you know, it's taking form. And when I finished, actually, I looked at it. I'm like, oh my gosh, this looks absolutely nothing like the original at all. (laughs) And so I put it up on the, the, you know, the shelf thinking she just won't notice. Okay. When she got home from grocery shopping, I don't know what it was for whatever reason. Her heart must have just been thinking about this vase while she was gone. Because when she got home, she just wanted to spend time with her mother's vase. Went basically right to the vase. And noticed it looked nothing like before. And came right to me. And I was an only child. I had no one to blame it on. People with siblings. You got the best deal ever if you're a sibling. Like you the be- Especially if they're young and they just don't know what's going on. You got the best deal ever. 
There was no one for me to blame it on. So I had to take all the blame. And I explained to her, I tried, and I tried to fix it and reconcile it and put it back together. But, you know, it looked nothing like the original. You know, we try and do that. We try and take the things that are broken, and we try and put them back together. And we try and lean on ourselves to do it, that we know how to fix the things that are broken. Here's the truth. Jesus knows how to fix things that are broken. Jesus knows how to reconcile. We might know how to fake it for a while. We might know how to put together a vase that kind of looks like the original and, and try and fake our way through it. But we know it's a fraud. Jesus knows how to reconcile the things that are broken. This is what it says later in that verse. This will be up here on the screen. This is what it says. You're going to love this verse. All right. That God was reconciling the world to himself. He was fixing the things that were broken with this world. He was putting it back together and in Christ, uh, to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. How freeing, how much freedom is there in that? You know, you might just walk away with that line and that's enough for you. Not holding their sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation, that Jesus will reconcile. It is a mess. He believes in the gospel of that message. Uh, we are therefore, this is very important, Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. So when we think, man, I, I want to make an impact in the marketplace. I want to make an impact in my organization, but I don't know how to do it. Like I'm middle management play. I don't know how to do that. God's put you where he's put you for a purpose. There's a ministry to what you are doing. You are an ambassador. When you're looking at the lunch tables around your lunchroom and you're like, man, I, I feel like I should reach out to those kids or I feel like we should be more inclusive, but I just don't know how, like what if people think I'm weird for wanting to include that kid who's way more weird than I am? Which I understand that. I understand that. Yet God has looked at you and said, you have the ministry of reconciliation. You are my ambassador. You can do things. See, often, and it's the very bottom of your notes, you see, listen, often it's, it's about me. Help me help you. It's about I. It's about me. I want to challenge you with something different. I'll help you help we, we, us. That's right. Together, we can do great things. Part of the reason why we wanted to have the junior high students and the adults together is because we want to cast vision for something that we can do together. Every single one of us can participate in. As you walked in, you got um, a couple of things. You got this Beyond brochure and a prayer card. You heard the video. We want to build, we're going to take this community center that's right here and rebuild it so that it will be the front door of Mariner's Church, kind of like that gate for the city where people can come and experience the love of Jesus. People can come and get the help that they need. People can come and feel welcome and feel, find their part in the story. That's what we want to do. And the reality is every single one of us can do something about this. Many people have been praying for this project for some time. Now they're asking us to join them in prayer. Remember, Nehemiah prayed for four months, asking God, what is my part? What can I do? How can I participate in this great work that you're doing, God? And so you have a prayer card. This is why we gave you this this morning. Would you commit to just spending a few minutes a day praying for this project, asking God what part you can have in this great work. Because this is not just for you and for me. It's for Orange County. It's for all the people, the people in your schools, the people in your businesses, the people in your neighborhood, to come and experience the love of Jesus. 
We as ambassadors each take our part. Imagine the chapel. Imagine junior high. One team, one part of the wall doing our little piece. And we could do a great thing with the whole church together doing the math when God's in it. Multiplication. Great things. Thank you again for listening. Make sure to learn more about Inez Franklin at www.inezfranklin.com. You can help share these teachings by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts and sending this episode to a friend. Make sure to follow Inez Franklin on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and more, where she is engaging with the community and inviting us to participate with God and his work together. Thanks again. Thanks again.